Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called The Awful Secret of Flight 149. It was written by Stuff senior writer Mike White, who joins me now. Hi, Mike. G'day. How are you, Michael? First of all, Mike, we should address the elephant in the room, which is that you and I have basically the same name. We do, and it results in a few mixed-up emails sometimes at Stuff. Indeed. Sadly, it's mostly tips meant for you that get sent to me. Anyway, the awful secret of Flight 149, what is this story about? This is a story that looks back uh, to an incident in 1990 when a British Airways passenger plane landed in Kuwait in the middle of an invasion by Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army. Uh, And the nearly 400 passengers and crew on board were taken hostage, many of them used as human shields in Kuwait and Iraq, including some New Zealanders. As we'll hear, though, that's only half the story. So without giving too much away, set the scene for us. What are the circumstances of this hostage crisis? So for many years, there have been questions asked about why this British Airways plane was allowed to land in Kuwait as Saddam Hussein's forces arrived in the country and started strafing the runway where the plane actually was and why the hostages were allowed to be captured in such a way. And for 30 years, Stephen Davis, a New Zealand journalist, has probed into this and he's just released a book called Operation Trojan Horse, which reveals many of the uncomfortable secrets behind this story. Did many people know about this? Was it a surprise to you to find out? Yes, it was. I'd never really heard about this story. It has been mentioned in the past, and there have been suggestions, but what Stephen Davis has uncovered in his book is incontrovertible proof about how this plane was used as part of a secret operation and how the passengers were collateral damage in that. Thanks, Mike. Now here is Mike reading his story, The Awful Secret of Flight 149. Helen Peters still remembers everything. The guns, the terror, the certainty that she was going to die. How she sat on the ground as soldiers herded everyone into a room and locked the doors. How she couldn't stop shaking, thinking this was it. They were all about to be shot. She remembers so much more, too, of the month she was held hostage in Kuwait during the 1990 Gulf War, after the airliner she was on was captured by the invading Iraqi army. How it changed her from a carefree and trusting 28-year-old with the best job in the world as a British Airways first-class stewardess, to someone racked with anxiety and recurring nightmares. How she had to leave England to escape the fear and frightening dreams and find some kind of peace in New Zealand. And how nobody has ever explained why they were allowed to land in a war zone in the first place. Only now have the answers finally become clear and they're not what she ever expected. Oh my God, she says from her Auckland home. Oh my God. Stephen Davis had his head and hands full. His first child had just been born He'd been appointed news editor of Britain's just-launched Independent on Sunday newspaper, and a war was breaking out in the Middle East, 
as Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces invaded neighbouring Kuwait over an oil field dispute. The New Zealand journalist had been working in the UK for 10 years when word came through that a British Airways 747 had been caught on the ground in Kuwait during a stopover. On board Flight 149 were 367 passengers and 18 crew who were immediately taken hostage by Iraqi troops. Davis remembers initial reports suggested the hostages were in luxury hotels sipping cocktails by the pool. But then he got a phone call telling him things weren't like that, and it soon became clear the danger the hostages were in. Despite Saddam describing them as guests of peace, they and other Westerners in Kuwait were split into groups, moved around the country and into Iraq, and often held as human shields in critical installations to deter attacks from British and American forces massing across the border in Saudi Arabia. Some, including New Zealanders Henry and Daphne Halkyard, were kept in frightful conditions for months. But by December 1990, all had been released, and Davis admits journalists moved on, focusing on Operation Desert Storm, which drove Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. The public were preoccupied by the price of oil, not the price paid by those caught up in the war. Unfortunate innocence, said British Airways officials, wringing their hands sympathetically. Collateral casualties, said British politicians, wiping their hands of blame. Liars, says Stephen Davis, pointing the finger at both of them for 30 years of denials and cover-ups and hiding the terrible truth of what happened. As Flight 149 sat on the tarmac at Heathrow Airport on the evening of August 1st, 1990, news broadcasts were already reporting 100,000 Iraqi troops were lined up on Kuwait's border. Concerned passengers, including the Halkyards, asked British Airways staff why the plane was still stopping over in Kuwait on its way to Kuala Lumpur. But they were assured everything was safe and they would divert if necessary. Just before the plane's doors closed, a group of nine men boarded and took seats near the rear. Soon after midnight, Saddam Hussein's troops rolled across the border into Kuwait, heading down the asphalt highway splitting the desert on their way to the capital, Kuwait City. Meeting little resistance, the first forces arrived in just over three hours. Flight 149 touched down at 4.13am for refuelling and a crew change. Shortly afterwards, Iraqi jets began strafing the runway and troops circled the airport. Everyone was taken hostage and transferred to hotels. Everyone, except the nine men who had boarded the plane late. They were escorted from it as soon as it landed. The men were part of a top-secret intelligence team called The Increment, Drawn from former soldiers and spies, members were recruited by the British government for undercover missions that were so sensitive they could be denied if anyone was caught. The four two-man teams and an intelligence officer, posing as engineers with surveillance gear disguised as surveying equipment, were to be inserted into Kuwait 
to provide reports on the war and liaise with the Kuwaiti resistance. The mission had been authorised by British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the Ministry of Defence and MI6, the UK's foreign spy agency, with the cooperation of British Airways. The plan was for the team to be on the ground and Flight 149 to have carried on to Kuala Lumpur well before Iraqi troops arrived in Kuwait City. Neither of these things happened. One increment team was rounded up immediately by Iraqi soldiers and held with other hostages. Another eventually made it to the south of Kuwait, but had to be rescued by helicopter when they became ill. The other two teams, however, did provide intelligence reports during Saddam's occupation and the subsequent war. But the remaining passengers on Flight 149 suffered terribly for the British government's mission. During their time as hostages and human shields, they were subjected to rapes, assaults, mock executions and starvation. One group was fed a giraffe from Kuwait Zoo. While all other planes were diverted away from Kuwait and the last flight left there at 1.45am, Flight 149 was allowed to land two and a half hours later, four hours after Iraq's invasion began, to offload the intelligence team. But for 31 years, the British government has denied there was such a mission, denied the increment existed, denied Flight 149 was a Trojan horse to get spies into Kuwait, denied the passengers' lives were placed at enormous risk for the sake of an intelligence operation. Indeed, when questions were raised about why the flight had landed in Kuwait at such a dangerous time, Margaret Thatcher told the House of Commons Iraq's invasion began after the plane landed. It was a stone-cold lie, says Stephen Davis, designed to deceive, designed to put people off the story, no doubt about it. As one sustained lie, it must be up there as some kind of record holder. No part of what she said was true. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of The Long Read. If you're an advertiser and you like what you're hearing, you could help us keep making podcasts like this one. Thousands of people listen to stuff podcasts every day. So if you'd like to be part of one of New Zealand's biggest and best podcast platforms, go to advertise.stuff.co.nz slash audio and get in touch with us. Back to the show. Davis knows this because he's spoken with two of the increment team on the mission and another who helped plan it and countless others with knowledge of it and more than a hundred of the hostages who suffered dreadfully as a result. I could not sit in a living room and listen to any of these people and not think, this is an outrage, this is disgusting, Davis says. And the lack of knowledge about what happened here has just been terrible. His three-decade investigation has culminated in his just-released book, Operation Trojan Horse, which is also being adapted into a BBC drama. Davis, 64, has worked in newspapers and television in England, New Zealand, Australia and America, and now lives in Dunedin, lecturing at Otago University. 
He's constantly had official doors slammed in his face, been threatened and taken to court while investigating intelligence agencies. He expects pushback from British authorities over his latest revelations. This, Davis says, was because they didn't want secret operations exposed and were afraid of further compensation claims by Flight 149 passengers. I'm more nervous about this story than any other I've done in my life, Davis says. And that includes being stuck in the Amazon rainforest surrounded by armed men. On Monday this week, August the 2nd, the 31st anniversary of the hostage-taking, Davis held a press conference in London where he was joined by more than a dozen Flight 149 hostages. Together they called for an apology and for the release of a hidden government report on the episode. Crucially, Davis also shared the stage with Anthony Pace, who was MI6's station chief in Kuwait in 1990. Pace was aware of Iraq's imminent invasion and was in communication with British Airways. Pace said he had previously been prevented from speaking about the incident because of restrictions under Britain's Official Secrets Act. But now he's broken his silence, confirming that the military intelligence exploitation of BA-149 did take place, despite repeated official denials by the Ministry of Defence since 1991. I know that it was a hasty and misguidedly prepared attempt to put intelligence boots on the ground, Pace said. It was important, he added, to highlight the damage caused to the mission's involuntary victims. Stephen Davis is adamant Margaret Thatcher would have ordered the bombing of Iraqi and Kuwaiti installations despite hostages being held there. The fact Thatcher had authorised the very intelligence operation that led to them becoming human shields only magnified her ruthlessness. But Davis stresses such covert intelligence operations are common around the world. Same in New Zealand, he says. Let's not fool ourselves. Whether it's national or Labour, they'll still deploy the SAS in official or unofficial roles if it suits them, if it suits geopolitics, if it's doing a favour for somebody. Rowan Halkyard Mills had no idea her parents were even in Kuwait. As far as she knew, they were enjoying a few days in Malaysia on their way home to Matakana after visiting family in England. It wasn't until a week after Flight 149 was captured that a British Airways representative informed the family that Henry, 60, and Daphne, 57, were prisoners of Saddam Hussein. The couple had emigrated from the UK to New Zealand in 1969. Henry Halkyard worked as a farm manager. However, for this trip, they were travelling on their British passports, meaning they were treated more harshly by Saddam. Rowan, then a 20-year-old university student, and her three siblings, eventually discovered their parents had been moved to Baghdad. The reality was much worse, however. Daphne and Henry were taken to a nuclear power plant as human shields, where conditions were awful. But when Saddam announced he was releasing all women and children hostages, Daphne refused to leave her husband, insisting they were a couple. Back in New Zealand, the family wrote them countless letters, 
but none got through. The first they saw of their parents was when they were paraded on Iraqi TV to meet Saddam. Rowan was shocked. We were very frightened and pretty helpless, really, she says. You live in hope, but by the time you're nearing three months of them being in captivity, you start to realise you might not be going to get a good outcome. At the end of November 1990, after 84 days as hostages, the Halkyards were released, following the intercession of former British Prime Minister Edward Heath. Daphne eventually wrote a book about her experience, and the event sparked a lifelong interest in the Middle East for the couple. Henry, however, remained angry they never got an apology from British Airways. All they received was compensation for their lost luggage. And Daphne remained haunted by what they'd experienced, suffering flashbacks and moments of absolute terror. Henry died in 2003, Daphne in 2019. They carried themselves with a lot of strength and dignity, says Rowan. I think more than ever, they realised you just need to get on with things. Despite the time that's passed, Rowan still hopes the truth about Flight 149 will finally come out. It was a traumatic event in my parents' lives, she says. It was a traumatic event for myself and my siblings' lives. It should never have happened. You should be able to board a civilian airliner without feeling at risk of being used in some kind of military or political manoeuvre. Oh my God, repeats Helen Peters, the stewardess on the fateful flight who now lives in New Zealand. She has just learnt that the captain of Flight 149, Richard Brunier, was an MI6 asset and knew the plane was carrying a secret team of spies. Because of this, Brunier had been given contacts with the Kuwaiti resistance and managed to escape with several other crew members from the hotel where they were held. Peters was meant to go with them but couldn't make the rendezvous after encountering guards and having to hide in a bathroom. All you could hear, she says, was your heartbeat and watch ticking. Without her captain and abandoned by British Airways Kuwait manager, who also fled, Peters broke down crying. We were just left and I felt scared, she says. Reality just hits and you think, what's going to happen now? The next morning, Peters and others were put on a bus and driven through the bombed and burnt out city. Eventually they ended up at the ransacked palace of a Kuwaiti royal family member. Here she had the surreal experience of eating meagre rations from gold plates and drinking water from crystal glasses. But Peters and the other hostages remained surrounded by soldiers, and the fear was constant, especially since two other British Airways attendants had already been raped. You're helpless, she says. You're absolutely helpless. Throughout the ordeal, Peters kept notes, written on whatever paper she could find. She still has the diary today. August 18, she wrote. Tonight I broke down and cried for the first time. God, get me out of this place. I can see us being here for weeks, even months. After more than four weeks, 
Saddam Hussein announced women and children were to be released, and Peters was bussed to Baghdad, then flown back to England. But the effects of her ordeal were immediately apparent. The next day, looking out the window of her house, she told her friend a tank had just driven past. Peters returned to work, but after three flights, encountering armed guards in India and Hong Kong, and hearing gunshots in South Africa, it all proved too much, taking her back to being a hostage in Kuwait. She transferred to short-haul flights close to home. Even then, anxiety lurked everywhere. She avoided London, stopped going to shopping malls, and didn't like going out, terrified of terrorism. I was a very happy-go-lucky person, she says, and I always said I was a strong person. I'd been through a lot growing up. But I'd been turned into a person who, if anything bad happened, I'd be shaking. I had recurring nightmares that I was caught in another war. Eventually, the anxiety of living in England became too much. In 2006, Peters and her family moved to New Zealand. And as soon as I got here, she says, I just suddenly felt this relief that I felt safe. Life has got better. The nightmares have stopped. Her husband Martin and four children have been Peter's rock. I poured all my love into my family and that was my healing, I think. But the anger at what happened and how she was treated by British Airways and the British government has never disappeared. They changed me, she says. My personality wasn't the same when I came back. It made me run away from my country because I felt so scared. What makes it worse for Peters, now 59, is that until now, there's never been any explanation why Flight 149 landed in Kuwait when the Iraqi invasion had already begun. Despite everyone knowing the war was imminent and passengers and crew raising concerns before the plane took off. They put all our lives, hundreds of lives at risk, Peter says. We were just pawns. Peters received £5,000 and a certificate from British Airways as compensation for what she went through. But she never got an apology or any acknowledgement of the intelligence team on Flight 149, which, as Stephen Davis's book conclusively proves, caused the plane to land in a war zone. You want to know the truth, Peters says. They've got to be held accountable for what they've done. They've got to own up and apologise. I don't think there's one person it hasn't affected and put a mark on their life. And the story needs to be told. That was The Awful Secret of Flight 149 on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Mike White and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. 
If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.